Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Growing up at the feet of the Himalayas in northern uh, India, Priyanka Kumar took for granted her immersion in a lush, natural world. After moving to North America as a teenager, she found herself increasingly distanced from more than human life and discouraged by the civilization she saw contributing to its destruction. It was only in her 20s, living in Los Angeles and working on films, that she began to rediscover her place in the landscape and in the cosmos by way of watching birds. And her new book is Conversations with Birds. About soon from Milkweed Editions. Priyanka Kumar's essays and criticism appear in the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Review of Books, and many others. And uh, she is was wrote, directed, and produced a feature documentary, The Song of the Little Road, starring Martin Scorsese and Ravi Shankar. Uh, Kumar has taught at the University of California, Santa Cruz, University of Southern California, serves on the board of directors at the Leopold Writing Program. Joins us for the program today. Welcome to the program, Priyanka Kumar. Thank you, Tom. We appreciate you uh, being with us. Uh, You're in Santa Fe, are you? I am, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, So you write at the very beginning of your book, Birds are my almanac. They uh, tune me into the seasons and into myself. I guess my first question is, what's what's happening this season? What's happening right now in your backyard? (laughs) That's a great question, Tom. Um, So this is... just a gorgeous time of year in Santa Fe, and we have a tradition here uh, every fall that we go up into the mountains um, and do the Aspen Vista hike in the Santa Fe National Forest, uh, where you can just see masses of aspens turning to gold and, you know, yellow and red. So um, this season... um, what I am looking at, actually, the bird that I am looking at the most is um, the Rufus hummingbird. Um, and uh, this is a bird that I am really concerned about because it just landed on uh, the 70, a list of 70 tipping species of birds where if um, nothing is done about their habitat, uh, we might be in danger of um, losing a large swaths of their populations. So um, this fall, I have busied myself with restoring habitat for um, rufous hummingbirds, which are beautiful, uh, a little aggressive, stunning hummingbirds. And I still have some female rufous who are uh, floating around uh, in my garden, and I am trying to... well, just <laughs> laughingly talking to them and uh, saying maybe it's time to move on to warmer climates. <laughs> and encourage them a little bit, yeah. Yes. Uh, that's, that's wonderful. By the way, you know, there's the, the, the macro and the micro. What, what can we do in backyards and such to improve habitat? Yeah, I mean, I think we can do a lot. I think, uh, I think that urban habitat can really be a game changer. And one of the best things that we can do no matter where we live is um, to put native plants um, into our backyards, because these are plants that have really co-evolved with native wildlife. So the best thing that we can do for birds is to, um, you know, 
just grow native plants and grow bird habitat. That's what I try to encourage people to do is, is, you know, feeders are okay, but let's not rely on feeders. What these birds really need is, um, you know, to, for instance, I was just this morning uh, enjoying watching the goldfinches who are now coming to uh, the dried sunflower heads and and eating that. And it was only recently that I, I learned that Goldfinches are maybe among the most vegetarian birds in the <laughs> bird kingdom, and so they 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 tend to not eat insects. And so these sunflower heads are really important uh, to them, as are milkweeds. So um, that's that's essentially what we can do is is grow habitat for birds. So speaking of critical uh, importance of habitat, uh, I want to have you talk about uh, your participation in a, a count of eagles, right? And uh, yes. really, really struck me. You you talked with a, a person at that that area that, that she'd only seen one eagle right this year. Yeah. And she told uh, you she told you a story about a, a bald eagle who, uh, I guess, essentially starved to death. Yeah. I mean, this is so sad, and this is in uh, the village of Pilar that is uh, north of where I live. Um, it's about an hour north on the way up to Taos. And um, I stop there all the time uh, to see what the bird situation is like in general because they have some good raptors in that area, but specifically uh, bald eagles are a bird that is very close to my heart. And um, interestingly, Tom, a lot of us think that, oh, well, bald bald eagles are fine, you know, after we got rid of um, DDT and all of that. Um, bald eagle populations recovered and got off of the endangered uh, species list. I think it was somewhere around 2007. Um, And all of that is true, but, um, you know, we have to take into mind that um, the Southwest has been in a mega drought since about 2000. And so uh, the environmental conditions are changing. And, um, you know, there's there's less water in our rivers. Um, you know, bald eagles are, are birds that uh, stick very close to water bodies. So how is how is it impacting these birds? And we don't really, this is the cutting edge of research right now, we don't really know the answers to some of these questions. But what I have been doing is just getting out there and, and doing what field work I can and, and finding out, you know, hearing, listening to people tell tell these stories and essentially what happened in uh, the village of Pilar is that uh, they had um, two bald eagles, and and this is we're talking about now. It's it's been a couple of years, and um, one of them became a little bit like the village pet. Everybody was keeping an eye on this bird, and with um, the extreme fluctuations we've had in temperature and precipitation, uh, the conditions were such that. I guess the bird didn't have um, enough fish, and uh, these birds actually get their water from from fish. So um, uh, the situation was so bad that 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 it actually uh, was starving, and people realized that something 
really bad was going on with this bird, and they called up uh, Fish and Wildlife Services, who came and. But basically, at that point, the bird was at the point where it, it, it there's nothing that could be done, and it passed away soon after. So, um, you know, when you and I are um, looking out and seeing, for instance, that well, uh, this winter we're not getting much snow. Um, I think that we could also be thinking about, well, how is this impacting wildlife? And in this case, um, it seemed that this this bald eagle, unfortunately, uh, starved to death. Mm. Uh, I can't resist talking about this. Uh, where we're, we're talking about bald eagle. Of course, bald eagle is the national symbol. Uh, yeah. You have a quote from Benjamin Franklin here. Benjamin Franklin wanted the turkey, I think, right? He was outvoted. <laughs> Um, and he, he I'll, I'll just read uh, just the first sentence of uh, Franklin's quote that you have in the book. He says, the bald eagle is a bird of bad moral character. Uh, Franklin, <laughs> Franklin didn't like the bald eagle. Hmm. Oh, well, you know, because um, it, it, it tends to, um, it's an, look, Tom, the bald eagle is an opportunist. Um, and, um, I mean, I guess that, um, uh, <clears throat> that's what Americans are supposed to be as well, right? <laughs> so maybe in a way it's, um, it's not so inappropriate to have the bald eagle as our national bird. Um, and, uh, it tends to, it tends to keep a close eye on, on the osprey especially. And when the osprey grabs a fish, uh, the bald eagle is usually there. <laughs> ready to 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 get the 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 fish from the osprey's mouth um but you know um i have seen the bald eagle several times fishing on its own so let's not give this poor bird such a bad rap <laughs> yeah don't <laughs> don't take uh, benjamin franklin's the final word i guess on that uh, right yeah. um you you talk uh in the book about a pretty visceral experience uh going to an area that had been clear-cut. And there, yeah. there apparently have been promises that these would be strategic uh, timber harvesting. When you went to one of the areas, uh, your view was uh, this wasn't strategic. This was pretty pretty much uh, clear-cutting. Tell me about that. You, In fact, you used the word. It was like uh, the feeling you'd get at a crime scene. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Tom, I, I this was at the Carson National Forest um, in northern New Mexico, and um, I was actually, I had, I had the good fortune of uh, staying for about five weeks in um, a cabin that Aldo Leopold built. Um, well, he helped build it about more than 100 years back now. And so I was there for five uh, weeks uh, at the edge of the Carson National Forest. So I was fortunate to spend a lot of time in the forest. I was out in the forest every single day. And so I really got, um, um, I would say, a very fine-grained look at what's going on. Uh, because a lot of times, you know, the rest of us hear about uh, the... Uh, you know, maybe the selective, let's say, selective culling that's going on in the forest, or, you know, we know a little bit about the lumber industry, but not too much. But I have to tell you that I was truly aghast by what I saw uh, right behind uh, the cabin in an area uh, where you'd think that, you know, this, this, this should almost be a national heritage site because Aldo Leopold, who is 
often considered to be the father of the environmental movement here in the U.S., and he's the one who um, got the whole wilderness system going with the Gila National Forest um, and the Gila Wilderness. Uh, you know, there was there was a the, an area, uh, a beautiful area where I would go walking every day, and and it was completely clear cut. And this is not even what I talk about in the book. Uh, this is at the heart of the Carson National Forest, where I uh, was doing field trips to look at a magnificent um, raptor, the goshawk. And the goshawk, incidentally, is a sensitive species, which means that the Forest Service is supposed to go above and beyond and do what it can to make sure that, um, you know, the habitat is protected for the goshawk. And it turns out that the goshawk, and scientists know this, prefer old-growth forests. And so you would think that at, at the Carson National Forest that, that they would be protecting um you know, the old growth trees, the trees that they have there, the ponderosa pines, are essentially about 100 years old. So they're not old growth per se, um, but, you know, they're old enough for our purposes. And I went with one of the rangers who was uh, very kind to take me and um, looked at some of the areas where the goshawk had traditionally nested in that forest. And uh, to my horror, I found that that area had been turned over to a lumber company uh, to just essentially do as close to a clear cut as you can get. And so the goshawk, which had been nesting there just, you know, um, maybe two months prior, um, had fled the area. I mean, it was just, it really was, Tom, like, like being at the site of a crime scene and the goshawk and the chicks were nowhere to be seen. And um, I came back uh, so dispirited from that experience. And, um, you know, I came back and uh, got a coffee from the local cafe and the woman who owns that coffee shop, and he, she's an important person in that area, in that village, you know, asked me where I'd been, and I told her. And uh, she said, oh, I'm, I'm really surprised. I thought logging in all this area had been um, paused for, for, you know, the spotted owl. And I said, oh, no, it's, it's not been paused. It's, it's, it's going at a terrific rate. And so it's, it was really interesting for me. This, this woman is a hub, and she a hub of information dispersal in the area. It was really interesting to me that it seems that the Forest Service hasn't really been able to communicate well with the with the villagers and talk to them about um, you know the birds. There's no there's no support um, in those areas for protection for these birds, incidentally, and um, it's just the lumber companies are so powerful and they are constantly knocking at the door of the Forest Service, and a lot of us don't know about this. And what I say to people is that our fervor to protect our forests and our birds um, has to be greater than the greed of the lumber companies. And until that happens, um, without our knowledge, um, you know, um, significant areas of our national forests are being decimated. It's a tragedy. Hmm. 
you you talk about that uh, that experience you got a negative experience right uh, but uh, i guess it's in that same area that you uh, you've you found some healing as well uh, uh you're you know dealing with the death of your parents and your uh, early death of your your, your brother mm-hmm. tell me about that um yeah i mean um You know, Tom, as a, as a very young child, uh, I've been I've been very connected to the natural world. It's meant a lot to me. I mean, I remember as a as a five year old, um, I would walk to school with my brother, um, just me and my brother, and I would just look at uh, the mountains. This is when we were living in the foothills of the Himalayas, and just looked at look at the snow capped mountains and. I would, and maybe as a child I was personifying the mountains, but I would really feel their presence. I felt the presence of nature, and sometimes it wasn't always positive uh, in that same town when I was about five or six. You know, we had a terrible earthquake uh, where people passed away. And so whether it was positive or negative, I always felt a very strong presence of the natural world and felt that it was it was this tremendous force in my life. Um, and as you mentioned in the introduction, when I first came to the West, I, I lost that. I felt cut off from that. And, and, and I experienced it as a, as a profound loss. Um, but once, you know, thanks to birds, when I found my way back into, into the nature, um, uh, and especially when I had that experience uh, living for five weeks in um, Aldo Leopold's cabin and just experiencing his presence in so many different ways um, and being out, um, just hiking out there and, 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 and seeing um, some birds in, in, in ponderosa pine stands that have mercifully been left intact. So these magnificent ponderosas. Um, I started to think um, about Leopold, uh, who himself went through a lot of ups and downs in his life. Uh, I mean, in fact, uh, at one point, he became um, so sick with what is now called Bright's disease that, that he, and that, that was the point when he had to leave that cabin and kind of take something that was more like a desk job. So I was thinking a lot about uh, the struggles that Leopold had experienced while I was hiking in that area. And um, I wouldn't say that I was consciously thinking about the losses in my life, but um, that, you know, that, that wove through my mind as well. And um, just just experiencing, I think, um, not just the birds, but uh, you might remember in that chapter I talk about um, <laughs> some close encounters with a bobcat and, and, and just feeling that primal... Um, I mean, when you, when, you, when you come that close to a wildcat, Tom, you, you, just, you just feel that you're you're experiencing something very primal you kind of uh um everything that just details seem to fall away and 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 you you feel very close to um to something ancient uh maybe to something that connects all of us uh to the kinds of feelings that 
we've moved so far away from in our device-filled lives um, that I, I really felt... I really felt that even though my parents were gone and my brother were, was unfortunately and, and tragically gone, uh, I felt that somehow they were still close to me, that they they still, there was, I still felt supported by them. And all of that came about because I was out in the natural world for such long periods of time. And I think I, I just came to an edge, almost you feel like the edge of the universe where, where you come back to all of those, um, you know, primal, uh, spiritual forces that most of us, you know, move away from in our day-to-day lives. And, and I, I felt thrown into, into, into that beautiful, um, terrifying edge of the universe, and 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 I I came away from there feeling that yes, I was supported. They were gone, but they were not gone. Well, let's uh, take a brief break. We're talking with Priyanka Kumar, author most recently of Converse, uh, Conversation with Birds, out from uh, Milkweed, uh, Milkweed Editions, um, and uh, we will have uh, more following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are joined by Priyanka Kumar, uh, author most recently of Conversations with Birds. Um, and uh, we have her for uh, most of the rest of the hour. Um, Priyanka Kumar, you, uh, you talk about how you, that uh, wonderful childhood uh, near the Himalayas, right, um, in India, mm-hmm. northern India, and just a connection with the natural world, then uh, came to North America living in cities, I guess, and that, uh, I guess at what point did you realize, hey, I don't have that connection anymore, and uh, w- what brought you back, what reconnected you? Um, well, so my, my dad was a, a diplomat who was posted to Toronto when I was uh, 17, so I did my um, bachelor degree from the University of Toronto, and and certainly in Toronto, um, it, it was a, a huge um, uh, culture shock for me um, to to not to not have that connection, and yet you know I was kind of busy doing my bachelor's, and then I, I came to University of Southern California for my master's in film production, and at that point I was really. Um, getting out there and, and, and hiking as much as I could. And I was backpacking in Yosemite and, and um, you know, doing a lot of um, uh, day-long or backpacking hikes in the Sierras. And it was very frustrating for me that, that I, I couldn't feel that same connection that I, I had had with um, the Himalayas and the foothills of the Himalayas, and I, I didn't know what was wrong. Um, I certainly enjoyed being out in the natural world and, and, and camping and backpacking and all of that, but, um, but something seemed to be missing. Um, and then um, I was uh, making films and, and teaching in Santa Cruz, and um, one fine December morning, uh, I took my husband, Michael, on a um, surprise birthday trip to the Elkhorn Slough, um, and we were just going to hike in that area, and um, there, were, um, there was this 
older couple who who came up to us just as we were about to start our hike, and they asked us if we were interested in a bird walk. And, um, you know, it's not something we thought about, but they uh, looked so hopeful we didn't want to disappoint them. So we said, okay, fine. And so they had this battered copy of the National Geographic Guide to Birds, and, and they took us on a bird walk around the slough. And we were walking along when I um, we came upon this this bird that looked kind of like um, <laughs> more like a pointer to the era of dinosaurs, like a, a monad of, of shorebirds. This is the long-billed curlew, and uh, I was just really struck by this bird um, because of the way the grace of this bird, but also the way in which um, I felt like it was very meditative, like a, a Zen monk. And it would, for long periods of time, be standing there very quietly at the edge of the water, and then suddenly it would, you know, find some kind of crustacean and, and, and move in a flash. And I was fascinated to watch this bird. Um, and they all kind of, uh, you know, the rest of them kept kept going on, but I was, I was frozen there just observing this bird. And um, time seemed to dissolve. And um, um, I, uh, at one point, I noticed that a, a, fr- uh, a crab was uh, running towards my foot. So I moved out of the way and came back to myself. Uh, but I, I, I really fell in love with this long-billed curlew, and um, I didn't know that at the time, uh, but this this would be my entryway into uh, the world of birds, and, and, and this would be the way that I would begin to connect with the natural world in North America. You write, uh, this is in the preface, <clears throat> you say, I realized that I had been hiking extensively through California, but not seeing anything. I think we, mm. you know, we, we do that sometimes, don't we? I mean, I, I really think we do, and it's something that, that I've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, especially today uh, with um, how many devices we are constantly surrounded by. And uh, I... Uh, see all the time, because I'm in the national forests a lot, and I see all the time that even when people are hiking, they still have these devices with them. And um, I would strongly urge people to, (laughs) at least, at the very least, keep them in their backpack. Um, Because I think, think to be able to see, Tom, um, I think we need some, some silence, some inner silence. And uh, we need to create the right conditions so that we can see. And um, our lives are not silent anymore. And I really think that we, we lose something. We lose something by not being able to see. Um, uh, technology offers us, uh, you know, a great set of tools. But if we misuse it, uh, misuse these tools, then we, um, we become a little numb uh, we become a little numb to the riches that the natural world has to offer us. 
So, um, I mean, I was very fortunate at the time. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about when I saw this curlew. This was, um, you know, almost 20 years back. And, and you know, phones weren't uh, really, um, uh, I mean, people may, maybe had cell phones for emergency use. And, and so, um, so there was this, this great silence that I was able to benefit from and, and really go deeper and deeper over the years into the natural world and, and get to know these marvelous, beautiful birds that have completely changed my life. And um, I think about some of the, the younger people who are, you know, who are coming up today and, and, and the teenagers who, who, who just don't have those experiences because um, it's like um, they're chained to their devices. And, um, and I wish people would realize just how much they're missing out on <laughs> by, not, by not having that inner silence and by not being able to you know, have the right conditions to, to really, because you have to be very quiet in the forest. You just, you just really have to be very quiet and be out there for a long time to have these kinds of uh, transformative uh, experiences. But they're so worthwhile. I would, I mean, I'm, I'm really hoping that the book is going to encourage and inspire a lot of people um, to uh, open themselves to getting to know birds and other wildlife. You write, uh, you just been talking about this, you write that the 21st century might well become infamous for shattering what remains of our ability to concentrate. That's pretty strong. And then you go on to say, birds and other wild animals hold my attention completely. So what would you suggest? How, how do we cultivate that inner stillness? How do we improve that concentration? Um, I guess, first of all, put away the device, but what else would mm-hmm. you say? Yeah, I mean, put away the device, and, and, and I've done something pretty radical, which is that I never got that device in the first place. So, you know, people gasp when I say that I don't have a, uh, I don't have a, a cell phone. Uh, but I, ha- I have a pretty dynamic life, and I haven't missed it so far. So, so there's that. Um, I think just, um, you know, um, I understand that most people um, have it and and use it heavily, but just just put it away when you when you go out to hike. I mean, I mean, you know, just uh, um, or I would say, just create maybe um, pockets of time in your everyday life, um, especially in the morning when the birds are singing so beautifully. Um, and if you don't have bird song near where you live, uh, you know, make sure you have a special place or two that, that you could walk to or, or even that you drive to and then can walk to, uh, then can walk around. Um, and just, just pay attention to bird song, uh, whether it's uh, early in the morning or at the end of your day. Uh, just just make, make time for that, and, and you'll really experience um, the benefits of it in so many different ways, um, you know, spiritual, uh, but mental health. Um, we, we're, we're in a mental health crisis in, in our country, and uh, I think that this can be so beneficial to, um, to so many people to just take the time every day uh, to be out in nature, and I can tell you that I, I feel like my day is not complete if I, if I haven't um, 
you know, really taken the time to be out there for, you know, an hour or two at a minimum. Uh, I mean, Thoreau used to say that uh, his spirits don't feel in order unless he spent about four hours um, out there walking, and I understand that a lot of us can't do that anymore. Um, but really, no matter what kind of a day I've had, as long as um, in the late afternoon I just take out, take off, and and you know, just two days back I was just w- wandering around on dirt roads and and came upon this uh, coyote um, crossing the road right in front of me, and and it looked so beautiful, and I was so grateful because um, over the winters here, I've seen the coyotes look so skinny and straggly. So finally I came across a a coyote that had this beautiful, luscious coat about it, and it was looking at me for a long time. And and just everything else, just all the petty things um, that you deal with during the day, everything just melts away. I mean, we have these gifts that, that, that are you know, accessible um, to us, especially for those of us living in the Southwest. I mean, thank goodness we still have, um, you know, big areas of land where we can get um, lost in. And so I encourage people to give in to that magic, to to just sink into that magic of, of losing yourself um, in a natural area. And, and, and you come back energized, um, in, in, in your life, uh, your, both your inner life and your intellectual life, if you, if you really care to go deeper into uh, the stories of these animals, um, is so greatly enriched. Um, I don't see why we would miss out on that opportunity. You've said that uh, reading the natural world and deriving joy from it is a skill we can all cultivate. You go on to say you suggest people start by getting to know the names of some local trees, some common birds, and that you can do this even at the edge of the parking lot. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, and and that's what I do. I mean, um, you know, um, I usually feel really depressed when I'm in a parking lot, and so I just look around and and look at the trees and, and see what they've put in, and um, you know, uh, and I think that everybody can do that. I mean, we can get to know, um, you know, some of the trees, and 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 and, and I mean. Here in New Mexico, we mainly have uh, pinon, juniper, woodland. And so at first glance, um, either pinon or juniper don't look like much. But when you live with um, this kind of an ecosystem, you realize, and, and, and when you really look carefully at uh, pinon trees, for instance, uh, many of which are drying up because of the drought, um, I mean, I have a magnificent old pinon in, in my garden, and uh, it, is, uh, it offers shelter to, um, I mean, I've seen tens of different species of birds uh, go through there, like the, the shy titmouse, uh, you know, the bubbling little uh, warblers, whether it's an uh, orange crown warbler um, or a Townsend warbler recently, a stunning bird. Um, I think just by just by looking at trees, uh, we can gain so much. I mean, part part of the trick, Tom, is is just to um, you know we start to take everything for granted, and especially when we live in this kind of modern you know tech heavy world, um, we take everything for granted. And what I encourage people to do is to just pull back, pull way, way, way back. I mean, sometimes I just try to think about how miraculous it is that um, 
that, you know, we have these, these eyes that show us, the physical eye that shows us this uh, natural world. Um, and uh, I think to myself how fortunate I am that, that, you know, my eye works as beautifully as it does. I mean, I read so much, I should at least need glasses by now, but, but for some reason I don't. And so I just pull way back and marvel at, at the miracle of the eye and all that it shows me. And I, I think that I think we can cultivate that. We can we can cultivate that skill of of not taking things for granted, and of of getting um, getting a little closer to our our primal state. And and I think there's I think there's a, a little spring of of joy that bubbles there that that we've moved so far away from. And um, and and I encourage people to. Um, you know, nudge them to get a little closer to that. So, and 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 looking at trees and developing a relationship with trees can um, help us go in that direction. Well, let's take another break. Uh, we have with us Pranka Kumar. Uh, the latest book is Conversations with Birds, and we'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us uh, writer Priyanka Kumar. Uh, her latest book is Conversations with Birds. She's joined us from uh, Santa Fe. Um, so, uh, Priyanka Kumar, you uh, you talk about how um, you you don't do bird watching in the kind of the sense that uh, sometimes we think about it. You know, a checklist kind of a thing. Uh, tell us mm-hmm. how you watch birds, or is that even the right uh, term for what you do? Um, you know, Tom, um, there are a lot of birders, um, in, in this country, millions. And, um, a lot of times it seems that people find that what motivates them is to have a checklist of birds and to check off the birds that, um, they've seen. And I don't want to put down that way of birding. I know that works for a lot of people. But what I would like to encourage people to do is to move beyond that because that's, that's so much at the surface. Um, that's so human-centric. And um, certainly birds are extremely attractive creatures and quite charismatic. But I think we're, we're at a critical juncture in the history of our planet with climate change. And um, I think it's it's extremely important that we move away from um, just checking off birds that we've seen, um, but really start to think in terms of groups of birds and start to think in terms of ecosystems. And that's what I'm really interested in. Um, so when I, you know, that I told you the story about my first encounter with the long-billed curlew, um, and over the last 20 years, um, I have... Um, encountered the bird in many different time periods and uh, areas and states uh, when it's migrating and when it's breeding. And what I'm thinking a lot about lately, for instance, is the ecosystem that this bird needs uh, for its survival. And the longbill curlew is a grassland bird, and uh, grassland birds have been um, the fastest declining 
group of birds in in over the last 40 years here in the United States. And a big reason for that is that we're losing our grasslands. Uh, well, we've lost a lot of our grasslands to agriculture and to development. I mean, since the 1800s, um, I believe we've lost about 50 million acres of grasslands. And this bird needs grasslands um, to breed in and, and to raise its chicks in. And it feeds its chicks the grasshoppers that um, uh, are, you know, if all goes well, abundant in grasslands. But all hasn't been going well um, because of the extreme weather fluctuations we've been experiencing. So when I think about the long-billed curlew, um, you know, it would be it would be such a minimalistic experience to just check that off my list and say, oh yeah, I saw my long bill curlew this year. What I'm interested in doing and what I've found to be a rewarding experience is is to spend a lot of time with the bird. I mean, I observe. Um, so so you're right. Maybe watching isn't the right verb. Um, you know, I, I observe the bird in its breeding habitat. Um, you know, and experience um, how protective it is. It is one of the most fiercely protective parents I've come across. This bird has just wowed me with its parenting skills. Um, but but the sad thing is that there are places in Idaho where um, so what this bird does is if you if you get a little too close and some people don't realize that it, it kind of uh, dive bombs you, it flies over your head just to get you to get away. And, and I've heard that in places in Idaho when, when this bird will dive, dive bomb people who got a little too close, uh, you know, people who um, walk around with guns, I suppose, tend to shoot the bird. And, and, and so I think this is really a moment in time where we need to step back and really empathize with birds, get to know their stories. And that's, that's what I'm tr- trying to do with this book, is really telling the stories of these birds, my, my first encounters, but, but also how um, you know, I got to know um, the bird in a deeper way over the years. And I think that all of us have the capacity to do this to get to know birds and other wildlife in a deeper way so that we uh, get a feel for their stories and really empathize with them and, and, and that, you know, we move in the opposite direction from, you know, even the thought of pulling a gun out and shooting the bird. So, um, so can we do this? I think so. I mean, I, I, um, I have watched all kinds of transformations occur in people all my life, and I think one of the brilliant things about us human beings is that we have this capacity uh, for empathy, and I think that um, prose, art of any form, can uh, really stoke this capacity in us, really deepen it. And so I believe that we have the capacity to empathize with birds and the struggles that they are experiencing as a result of habitat loss and climate change. And I think that if we, if we tap into that, um, great transformations can happen. I am, I'm, I am essentially at my, at my core. I'm a hopeful person. Oh, we reached the, uh, the end of our, our time. Uh, the book is Conversations with Birds. It's a collection of essays. Um, and uh, Prankur Kumar is uh, the author, 
And uh, you can uh, find her at prankukumar.com. She has uh, joined us from uh, from Santa Fe. What a pleasure. Thank you for uh, joining us today. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to the program today. Uh, we'll go out as we... Uh, we do always, uh, at least uh, in this uh, time period, on Tuesdays with Citizens Academy and Richard Ratliff. Utah Public Radio, Citizens Academy, Session 12. My dad liked to talk about politics. He would talk politics with visitors to our home, relatives, friends in the community. He liked to talk about controversial topics just for the fun of the discussion. Political arguments weren't quite so emotional as they seem to be today. People might get excited and disagree, but they would still be friends in the end, and there was always something to talk about another day. I grew up in East Texas. The majority of people that we knew were conservative Democrats. You heard right, conservative Democrats. The Civil War ended only three generations before I was born, and Texans have a long memory. Not many Republicans lived in my hometown that I knew about, There may have been a few closet Republicans, otherwise lots of Democrats. Regardless of their political stripes, the people were states' rights conservatives wanting little to do with federal government. There you have it, conservative Democrats. That's how I remember it. Anyway, a few weeks before Election Day, my mom and dad would decide over several conversations around the kitchen table how they were going to vote. Well... It is now less than a month away from Election Day here, so let's gather around the table. I'm not here to tell you which candidates to vote for, nor am I recommending a conservative or liberal philosophy. There's room enough in relationism for all of us. But I am going to suggest some guidelines based upon the relationist principles and philosophy, which could ease some tension in our political climate and grease the wheels of government a bit. Number one, cut any candidate whose main campaign strategy is to criticize or ridicule. It's easy to criticize. It's easy to ridicule. It's divisive. It should be embarrassing. We need more constructive unity and cooperation. Number two, vote for candidates who exhibit the best relationship skills, especially when dealing with those who disagree with them. Vote for candidates who have outstanding skills in diplomacy, a sound understanding of good government and society, who have outstanding people skills and communication skills, who are good listeners, who have an understanding of and sympathy for diverse viewpoints and needs, who have impeccable reputations of integrity, responsibility, and dependability, and strength of character, and who truly care about the welfare of all the people within the jurisdiction of the office, not just those within a narrow political spectrum. Choose relationship skills, integrity, competence, responsibility, and compassion over a particular political philosophy. Number three, vote for candidates with a robust, diverse relationship portfolio, whose circle of friends and associates includes various socioeconomic groups, a broad spectrum of political philosophies, male and female, old and young, diverse races and cultures, and who get along well with them all. Number four, ignore campaign promises of specific results. Candidates often make promises that depend upon other people and circumstances outside their control. 
The only promise that really matters is the promise to do one's best for the welfare of one's constituents, all of them, even those who may not vote for them, and for the general welfare of society. Give me a candidate who will promise to do his or her best to promote unity, equal justice for all, tranquility, and effective common defense, the general welfare, and the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. In brief, vote against candidates whose primary campaign strategy is to criticize. Vote for candidates who have outstanding relationship skills, who have excellent relationship portfolios, who avoid campaign promises they may not be able to keep, and who do promise to promote and uphold the Constitution of the United States of America. Remembering now my grandfather, who was born in the South shortly after the Civil War, my grandfather's name was Robert Lincoln Ratliff, as in Robert E. Lee and Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. Curious, don't you think? Do you think my great-grandparents were relationists? This is Richard Ratliff. I am a political relationist. You may be, too. I hope so. Thanks for listening. Till next time.